Well, as we wrap up this summer series this morning, I want to remind you of some of the things that we learned. Hopefully the few things that I mentioned won't be all of the things that we learned. Uh, there's a, a richness to the stories in the Old Testament. But I wanted to uh, begin with a quote that we used on the very first Sunday that we started this series back in June. It was by Hollywood screenwriter Judd Apatow. Some of you know that name. He was asked about the last book that he put down without finishing, and he responded, the Bible. And then he made this statement. He said, wouldn't it be great if it did work for me? And I had the peace that one gets when knowing the universe is just and kind and guided by an eternal intelligence. And then he paused and said, maybe I'm reading it wrong. I think one of the common mistakes that are often made, innocently made by by many well-intentioned people, is, is a misreading of the Bible. It's so important, I believe, for us to read the Bible for what it is and, and not read it for what, for what it isn't. It is not a magic book. It is not a history book. It is not a health or psychology or, or science book. doesn't mean that a number of those topics don't work their way into the pages of Scripture and that there's not wisdom where we find it. But first and foremost, the Bible, we need to remember, is an ancient book. It is an ancient book that we as believers feel God has inspired and preserved for his people through the ages. It is a book that is predominantly one big story that is filled with a lot of smaller stories. More than 40% of the Old Testament, you may remember, is narrative, it's story. The Old Testament makes more, up more than three-fourths of the Bible. More than 50% of the New Testament is story. And my personal conviction about that is that it's not coincident. Paul told Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that God's people may be thoroughly equipped for living a life that brings glory to Him. Now, it's easy to forget that when Paul wrote those words to Timothy, he was talking about the Old Testament. He was living in the New Testament era. The New Testament had not been collected yet. We call it canonized. He was living in that era and he was fully aware of the complete work of Jesus, the atoning work of Christ, and yet he tells Timothy, the young pastor, to not neglect the use of the Old Testament in his teaching because it was useful for instructing and rebuking and correcting and training God's people so that they would know how to live their lives in relationship with God. And all those stories in the Old Testament are inspired by him. So they're more than just ancient stories. God desires for us to to learn about them, to learn about ourselves through them. And so in this series, we've asked two questions pretty consistently. What does this story teach us about God? What does this story teach us about ourselves? We began the series reading Psalm 65, and, and I want to end our series this morning with us using that text again as, as our reading text. It's a Psalm of David, which means that it was written by an ancient person. 
David lived approximately 3,000 years ago. Now, that's important because the ancient mindset, regardless of culture, made assumptions about their God. They made assumptions that, that oftentimes our modern mindset does not, or at least doesn't do so as much. So I want to invite you to, uh, to stand with it this morning, and we're going to read Psalm 65 together. And here's what I want you to do, if you would, listen closely for the things that David says about God. Listen closely for his descriptions about God, what God does, the way that he describes God, because there are evidence for his overarching assumption about God. You listen for the statements that he makes that describe. Stand with me, and then I'll tell you what that overarching assumption is, okay? So here we go. Let's read together. Praise awaits you, our God in Zion. To you our vows will be fulfilled. You who answered prayer, to you all people will come. When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. Blessed are those you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We are filled with the good things of your house, of your holy temple. You answer us with awesome and righteous deeds, God our Savior, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, who formed the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength, who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the turmoil of the nations. The whole earth is filled with awe at your wonders. Where morning dawns, where evening fades, you call forth songs of joy. You care for the land and water it. You enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with grain for so you have ordained it. You drench its furrows and level its ridges. You soften it with showers and bless its crops. You crown the year with your bounty and your carts overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the wilderness overflow. The hills are clothed with gladness. The meadows are covered with flocks and the valleys are mantled with grain They shout for joy and sing. My sisters and my brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. All right. So, let's just speak out some of the things that you've just heard about God. What are some of the descriptions, the activities that David assigns to God? What did you hear? He answers prayer. Okay. He's forgiving. Bountiful. Okay. What else? Okay. Cares for the earth. Watering and nourishing. Other things? How awesome are your deeds. Yeah. He's the hope. To what was it, Eileen? To the ends of the earth, of all the earth. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, the whole thing. It's all in there. (laughs) Excellent. What else? Do you hear anything else? People are dependent upon him. Yes, and what what did I hear over here? 
He calls for songs of joy. Answers us with awesome and righteous deeds. There was something in there too, was it not, about worship and the temple? Worthy of worship? Yeah. Lots of of great stuff that, that David ascribes to God. His overarching assumption of God is that he is near to the world and that he is near to the people he has created and that he is intimately involved in the practical day-to-day of those people. That's how so many ancient people groups understood the activities of God. God is not far, God is near. And God has a hand in the crops, the abundance or the lack of abundance, the rain or no rain, the sun or the clouds, that God provides for his world. God provides for his people. There was a direct correlation between the existence of the God that a people believed in and the daily activities, the ups and downs of their lives. That's certainly how David felt about his God. We know that that's how the Israelites understood their God and our God. Not only is he involved in the lives of people, but oh, by the way, he created them. And he created them for himself. And God loves the people that he has created for himself. So I have said to you all along, and I hope you've done this in some of your own reading, the stories invite us in. They invite us in, first of all, to to see ourselves for, for who we are. You know, they are us kind of a thing. Because what the scripture reveals in terms of the people of old is that they are imperfect, that they are broken people. But it also reveals to us a God who is relentless in his pursuit of broken people, relentless in his redeeming love for those imperfect people, and one who is at work out of the goodness of his nature and the perfection of his character, one who is at work to bring glory to himself. And when that happens, the people who love and worship him are blessed. And so it's through the lens of those two questions, what do we learn about God? What do we learn about ourselves? On this Communion Sunday, I just want to take a quick run back and, and look at where we've been because I think it's such an appropriate preparation for us as we, we come to the table of our Lord this morning. Anybody remember a fellow named Joseph? What comes to mind when you hear the name Joseph? <laughs> Multicolored coat. What else? Sold into slavery. Say again brothers gave him up. He forgave his brothers. Oh man, Joseph, right hand of Pharaoh, 
Joseph was born into a family that was a mess. It was a very, it was a very human family. He was loved way too much by his father. Therefore, he was hated by his brothers. Think he probably had some pride issues. And he ended up dealing with some pretty harsh and unfair treatment. Now, granted, I think that some of it was brought on by himself, but most of it was probably out of his control. Do you remember those profound words that he said to his brothers years after he'd been sold into slavery? Some of you approached that with the forgiveness theme. God had redeemed the situation. God had made Joseph the second most powerful man in the land of Egypt and his brothers, his entire family who had gone there for food, are bowing before the second most powerful man in Egypt, not even knowing that it's their brother. Finally, he reveals himself to them, and life goes on happily until the father dies. And then suddenly the brothers think, oh boy, our ticket to freedom is suddenly dead. And they were concerned that now that their father had died, that Joseph would get even. And he said to them, remember these words, what you intended for evil, God intended for good, for the saving of many lives. We learned that God was with Joseph through every step of that miserable experience. And God was faithful in working out his plan of redemption through Joseph for that day and for those people. Joseph's story reminds us, at least it should, that God doesn't work with perfect people. There are none. God works with messy, broken people. Sin has made humanity a wreck. We inflict pain on others. They inflict pain on us. Sometimes we deserve the heartache, and often we don't. But regardless, so often what happens as a result of the mess is we end up in prisons of our brokenness. And what we need to remember is that God is there. God is faithful. God is always at work to redeem. You know, and and the biblical word for redeem actually means to bring good from something that is not. To say that God is a redeemer is to say that God brings good out of things that couldn't possibly be good otherwise. That is our God. That is the God that Joseph worshipped. That is the God that David was worshipping in Psalm 65. That is our God. God is a redeemer. It's what he does. Redemption flows from his great heart of love for broken people. And it's important to remember, Joseph didn't necessarily know this when he was going through the hard times. I'm not sure that that he sat there counting on God's redemption. He may have. I, I shouldn't critique him like that, but he might not have. But as he looked back some 40 years later upon what had happened, he saw the hand of the Lord weaving those things together as a part of a plan that would bring God glory for the redemption of a people group. Again, God's redemption, seen so often 
as we look back. And so for us, the story of Joseph stands as a reminder of God's faithfulness, of God's redeeming character, and a reminder of how desperately humanity needs to be redeemed and how desperately we on a daily basis often need to be redeemed of the mess that we get ourselves into. And we trust because of who God was to Joseph, we trust that God is at work bringing redemption to our situations, whether we see it or not. We can be confident that he's at work through even the most difficult of circumstances. Then we talked about a woman by the name of Sarah. Remember Sarah? Wife of Abraham. What do you remember about Sarah? Anything? She laughed. How can we not think of Sarah without the laugh? Uh, Yeah. She laughed. You remember the laugh? She was a childless woman at age 65, living in a culture that defined a woman's worth by kids, especially by sons. So that may tell us a whole lot about how she felt about herself. And then this this strange God who appears to her husband tells him that that they're going to have a son and that from that son will come a great nation. Right. And after 10 years of waiting, at age 75, you remember the story, she told Abraham to go sleep with her maid and have a child through her so that she could have some claim to that since her maid was her property. And so Abraham did that, and a son was born. But it wasn't the son that God intended, and it brought about what seemed like a soap opera for the rest of their lives. So when after 24 years, God reiterated his promise of a son through her 99-year-old husband, Sarah, at age 89 years old, laughed. It was a laugh of disbelief. It was a yeah, right, kind of a laugh. She had waited. She had hoped against hope for nearly two and a half decades. And what had it gotten her? Heartache. Why on earth did she ever allow herself to believe in such an outrageous miracle? Ever been in a place like Sarah? Ever been hoping against hope, and, and, and it's just not happening. But once again, once again we are confronted, importantly so, we are confronted with the faithfulness of God who steps in and regenerates the aging body, the aging body? The worn out body of a tired old woman. Paul talks about Abraham in Romans and says his body was as good as dead. These are old folks, 100, and 99 and 89 at that point. God regenerates the woman's body, brings about a miracle for his glory, because that is what God is always most interested in, his glory being seen through his people. And so 25 years after the promise, Isaac was born. And you remember his name? It means 
laughter. Just like God to get the last laugh. He is indeed a promise-keeping God. What we learn about ourselves is that we can easily, like Sarah, misunderstand the purposes of God in our lives. I think it's important for us to remember that that he acts in love toward us, but, but God's timetable is rarely, if ever, similar to ours. Can you relate? And that, that can lead to disappointment. So we must be clear as to what his promises to us are. You know, Paul told the Roman believers that, that all of God's promises are yes in Jesus. So all that God promises to us through his son are promises that will be fulfilled. They are certain. We must be cautious not to put our own desires and what we think God has promised ahead of or in the place of what he has promised to us through his son, Jesus. Does that make sense? We do that as people. We want to help God out. We have a good idea. Surely this is what he meant. God is a promise-keeping God. But he keeps his promises that have been clearly made to us through his son, Jesus. Next came a young man by the name of David. Remember David? What do you remember about David? Shepherd, king, adulterer, murderer. Yeah, holy cow. He killed Goliath while a shepherd boy. And then he committed adultery and murder as a king. And we were reminded. We were reminded of the words of Jesus to his followers. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Scripture is so clear that God opposes those who are proud but gives grace to those who are humble. This table that is set for us this morning, could there be a a greater reminder of humility. The sacrifice of the Son of God is a loud and clear statement of how God values humility. Jesus' entire life is a statement of how God values humility. We learned that David learned humility and trust in the Lord as a shepherd boy doing the task that no one else in the family wanted. As the youngest, he was stuck with it. He was the shepherd. We learned about ourselves that that there is something, as we watched David make that transition from shepherd boy to king, there is something in our hearts as humans, even in the heart of those who are redeemed by God, there is something that is attracted to the idea of greatness, calls to us. It 
wants to lure us in. Greatness and popularity and esteem and fame and fortune and you fill in the blank. I hope we learned and we will remember to seek greatness and popularity and esteem and fame and fortune can be a disaster. To be given it by God can be a great blessing, but at the same time, an enormous test of our hearts. Because we said ultimately, that is where the test lies in terms of our relationship with God. He is always interested in what is going on in our hearts. Who and what will we love? David's greatest accomplishments came, I think, before he was a king. The troubles came after he had power and a title. And yet, even though that's true, we were reminded again that God looks upon the heart and he forgives the worst in us when we confess the worst in us. Doesn't necessarily spare us of the consequences for the poor choices that we've made as we've aspired to greatness and abused it. But the scripture reminds us that a humble and a contrite heart, God does not despise. I love that. Then along came a fellow by the name of Isaiah. Remember Isaiah? Prophet of, prophet of God. Remember anything in particular about Isaiah? Unclean lips. Vision of God. Prophet to the people of Judah who saw the Lord God of Israel on a throne. He says, high and exalted with his robe, filling the temple and the seraphs with wings covering their eyes and their feet. And they were flying around declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. You might remember that Isaiah specifically tells us that he saw that vision in the year that King Uzziah had died. And the king who had ruled Judah for 62 years, a good king for the most part, secured the nation, brought great prosperity. Life was was good under King Uzziah, but, but now he was dead. And just to the north was this this country called Assyria. And they were roaming the earth and taking captive all of the lesser countries in their path. And so, Isaiah and the people of Judah may very well have been wondering, what now? The king is gone. What now? And so in a time of, of, of national unrest and uncertainty, God was speaking into the life of his prophet and reminding him who it is that is really in control of all things. 
And the prophet's task, of course, was to tell the people what he had heard from God. And so you, you remember Isaiah's response to that vision? What did he do? Fell down as though he were dead and said, I'm history. No one sees God and lives. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And that great little piece of the story where one of the seraphs took a live coal from the altar and touched Isaiah's lips and assured him that he had been made clean by God. And we learned from that story that God is still on his throne ruling over our troubled world. There are no term limits for the Almighty. He is still on his throne. And we, like Isaiah, the people of God, we have been made clean because of Christ, because of his sacrifice. Isaiah's vision of God needs to be our vision of God in the troubled days in which we live. As the people of God, we need the Spirit to fill our hearts, that place of emotion and fear, Fill our hearts with a vision of God's greatness and the truth of of his reign over our world. Do you remember Isaiah's response, having been made clean? Then God asked the question, who shall we send? And Isaiah said, send him. Send her. No, no. Send me. That vision of who God was in his glory in his greatness, in his absolute control, Isaiah said, send me. God's greatness and God's glory and God's redemptive work in our lives through Christ is our confidence to live our lives for him. Isaiah's call is our call to humbly but boldly speak the truth of who God is into our troubled world. Doing it with humility, yet doing it with confidence that indeed God is who he says he is. Then we met a young woman by the name of Ruth. Remember Ruth? Where did she come from? Anybody remember? Moab. Yeah. Boy, the Israelites really loved the Moabites, didn't they? A favorite people group. She was disgusting by Israel's standards. She came from a despised group of people. The problem was she was married to an Israelite, to which some Jewish mother must have asked, what's a good, respectable young man like my Jewish son marrying a Moabite woman? But she was. The son died. But Ruth loved her mother-in-law, Naomi, who was also a widow. So Naomi, they're living in Moab at the time, you remember the story, decides to go back to her own land and her own people. And Ruth committed to going with her. Naomi couldn't talk her out of it. She gave her all the good reasons for why she should stay in her own land. Ruth was committed to going with her. When truthfully, it made a whole lot more sense to stay in her own land with her own people and her own customs. 
It's an amazing story. Both a love story, but it's also an amazing story of of commitment. Commitment in difficult times. And, And I suggested to you that perhaps our lesson from Ruth is to become more like Ruth in our lives. There's such a great irony in the story that that the despised one was willing to give up everything to show love to one of God's chosen people. How about us? How about us? Are, Are we willing to give up our earthly rights and our privileges and our comforts to the people of God, as the people of God, to, to show love to those who, who don't know him, to reach across ethnic and cultural and language differences, to bring the love of God in Christ to those who need to hear that. What did we learn about God? We were reminded of his great love for all people, no matter where they're coming from, lost and broken people, even those that we despise are loved by God. And don't forget, Ruth, that despised foreigner, she became the great-grandmother of King David and is included in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. Ha! Isn't that just like God? And finally, last Sunday, we spent a little time with another prophet by the name of Elijah. If you were with us, you'll remember that Elijah was filled with the Spirit of God, bold and courageous one moment, and running in fear for his life in the next. What was that all about? He was part of a spiritual battle, and the enemy was out to get him and struck, struck fear into his heart. And in Elijah's case, the enemy was Jezebel, wild and evil wife of King Ahaz, and he ended up despairing in a cave. That is what fear does. It does not come from God. Fear is a tool of the enemy of God. It takes us to a place of perceived isolation and causes us to think the worst about our life and circumstances. And fear has an amazing capacity to make us forget the great things that God has done as shortly as a couple of minutes ago. Depending on how fear shows itself in our lives. What do we learn about ourselves? From utmost confidence in God to fear for our lives. That's the human heart. It's what it does. We should not be surprised then when it happens to us. Nor should we be surprised to find that we're in that cave. Somebody was there before we were. God. No matter how fearful, no matter how bad the situation seems to us, we are not alone in that place of fear and despair. God met Elijah in that cave. And what I love the most about the story is that he didn't rebuke him. You know, he didn't tell Elijah to get over it. He didn't tell him how disappointed he was in him. he, He ministered to him. He sent angels to give him food and drink. Twice. And then he asked him that question. What are you doing here? Twice. What are you doing here? Now, 
lest we think that question was God trying to discern what was going on in Elijah's heart, it wasn't. God was wanting Elijah to discern what was going on in Elijah's heart. What are you doing here? God knew exactly what Elijah was doing there. But Elijah had to face his fear and despair. And when he was honest about that, God gently showed him how wrong his thinking was. That is our God. You're not alone, Elijah. He had God and he had many others whom God had preserved for himself who were lovers of God as Elijah was. My friends, that is a quick run through. May the truths that we learned in those Old Testament stories from those characters learned about them, about ourselves, about the God that we love and worship. May those truths rattle around in our heads and our hearts often and 